So we ended last week. Saul and Jonathan ended up, um, ended up dying. Remember who Saul was. Saul was the king um, of Israel. And then also remember who David was. David was anointed the king of Israel. But what was taking place in second, or 1 Samuel? He was just on the run as Saul tried to kill him because of his jealousy, knowing that he was a threat to the throne. Therefore, what was, and he also had the blessing of God. Therefore, Saul tried to kill him. Well, all of a sudden, Saul ended up dying in battle, and Jonathan, his son, died in battle. So now what is going to take place um, with the nation of Israel? You have a nobody. I'm going to say a nobody, just in a sense that his army was not extremely big, but it was extremely powerful, and he had the anointing of God that was on David. So he had the anointing of God, and he had a small army, but he was not king. I mean, he was you know, still on the run. What takes place when the king when the king dies? Let's just watch how Second um, Samuel starts to um, unfold. As soon as the king died, uh, this is what takes place. Second Samuel two. Then it came about afterwards that David inquired of the Lord, saying, "Shall I go up to the one of the cities of Judah?" And David brought up his men who were with him, each of them in his households, and they lived in the cities of Hebron. Then in Judah came a th- came and there anointed King David over the house of Judah. And they told David, saying, it was the men of Jabesh-Gilead who buried Saul. So I want to go to the next chart, and I just want to remember the 12 tribes of Israel. This is the 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 tribes of Israel here. Here is the tribe of Judah. Here's the tribe of Ephraim. Here's the tribe of Benjamin. Jerusalem is, is right there. And remember who um, Ephraim and Manasseh are. They are David's, are Joseph's children, you know, so they, they're not necessarily the tribes of Israel. Well, they are the 12 tribes of Israel because they're placed in the 12 tribes of Israel. But these were all Jacob's children, and these were Joseph's children. That's why you do not see a tribe of Joseph. You see a tribe of Ephraim um, and Manasseh. So David went to the tribe of Judah. And when he went to the tribe of Judah, what did this passage just tell us? That they anointed him as the king of what? That the king of the king of Judah. Now remember what takes place in Revelation. In Revelation you have the lion and the lamb who goes, oh, actually, I'm going I'm to talk about that later. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm, already getting it, I'm already getting into it, getting excited. So he becomes the, king, becomes the king of Judah. Now, then what happens to Israel, which this should be, I mean, because Saul was a king over everything, including Judah, but then they made David king of Judah. What happens to the rest of Israel? Um, Ishbosheth um, becomes king and takes Saul's spot. Second Samuel 2, 10 says, Ishbosheth. Saul's son was 40 years old when he became king over Israel, and he was king for two years. The house of Judah followed David. So you have a little bit of rebellion. You have Judah and David, and then you have Ishbosheth is the king of Israel, which would be the, the other tribes. But who um, is the anointed king? David is the anointed king, 2 Samuel 3. Now there was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David, and David grew steadily stronger, but the house of Saul grew weaker and weaker and weaker. You see God's hand is is moving what? He's moving towards, I've anointed this person, I am with this person, this is my king that I have chosen, this is the king after my own heart, and the situations and circumstances are taking place. David is not managing or micromanaging the situations and circumstances. He's letting God just consistently do his work. Second Samuel uh, 5, 1 through 3, we see that as David grew stronger, Ishbosheth grew weaker, that you see all the 12 tribes, and there's, there's a little bit of stuff that's going on 
with some of the generals as well. Um, but all the 12 tribes of Israel start bowing towards David. Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, Behold, we are your bone and your flesh. Previously, when Saul was king over us, you were the one who led Israel out and in. And the Lord said to you, You will shepherd my people Israel, and you will be ruler over Israel. So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them before the Lord at Hebron, then they anointed David king of Israel. Of course, this is after Ishbosheth um, Ish died and Ishbosheth was killed. So you see that God just consistently micromanaged and worked the system where we now have David, who was originally anointed, who is now specifically um, the king. Well, let's ask the question the reasons why Jesus is called the tribe of Judah. You know, because remember what happens in the lineage of, of David. Uh, what are we working towards? The whole Old Testament is working towards something. It's working towards what? It's working towards the Messiah who's, who's coming away, who is coming. And, and when you have Jesus that are walking on earth, what do they call Jesus? They call him the son, um, the son of David. That's what they specifically, specifically call him. And so David is the grandfather, great, 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 great grandfather um, of Jesus, the Messiah that is coming. And you see God's hand working through all that. So why do we call him the um, uh, king of Judah, Jesus the king of Judah? Second Samuel 5, 4 says, David was 30 years old when he became king, and he reigned 40 years. At Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months. And Jerusalem, he reigned 33 years over all Israel and Jerusalem. So you see that he was the ruler over Judah before he is the ruler over all of Israel that took place. So Revelation 5, 5 Here's when the end times come. You consistently have the mark that is on David, and this is the mark that's on David. Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll, and at seven seals, this is when Jesus comes and brings judgment on the earth. It's going to the tribe of Judah. You consistently hear that lion with the tribe of Judah. That is why, because he was a king for three years of Judah before he was a king, um, the king of Israel. So let's talk a little bit um, about Jerusalem, because as David um, is the king, he is going to do what? He's going to conquer the Jebusites, and when he conquers the Jebusites, I will tell you what he's going to do. He's going to build um, his palace there. And then again, he's going to build the temple there. So I just want to talk about Jerusalem because Jerusalem is the center of the world. Everything's taking place at Jerusalem. That's where the temple is at. Jesus was crucified in Jerusalem. Jesus rose again in Jerusalem. In fact, the whole world goes around the clock of Jerusalem. So I just want to show a couple pictures um, specifically of Jerusalem. This is a modern-day picture of Jerusalem. And David, I mean, after he becomes king of Israel, he's going to get the capital. This is the capital that is right here. So this right here is the city um, of David. And uh, of course, um, Jerusalem was conquered about 40 different times. So there's, there's talk about rubble, 60 feet tall, because you keep building cities on top of cities. So this, you don't see David's palace here now. You go to Jerusalem and you're walking on top of, you know, um, on top of an extreme amount of rubble with houses on top of it. But this is what it looks like. You have the city of David right here, and this is where the Jebusites are. I'll tell you that there's a valley, the Central Valley here, the Hinnom Valley here, and the Kidron Valley that takes place there. And it's just specifically on this ridge. And this is a great location 
And the reason why it is such a great location is because if it's on this ridge here and you have a valley, you have a valley, you build walls, I tell you, you can't break in. You just can't break in. Why? Because it's, it's, it's sitting, on, uh, sitting on a peak. And um, so this is the palace. And then right up here is where um, David buys, um, buys the, uh, the land from the Jebusites. We'll continue to consistently talk about that. And then dedicates it to God for the purpose of building a temple. So the tabernacle, the Ark of the Covenant goes up there. Uh, when David, you know, is king, and as he's king, you have the tabernacle that is rest there, and then Solomon comes, and he builds this huge, enormous temple that is right here, and so this right here is literally the center of the world. This is Mount Zion, right here, the uh, city of David, and then you have the temple, and the temple mount, the temple mount here, and then you have this, is all these graves, because Jesus is coming from the east. If Jesus is coming from the east, all these graves are going to be resurrected, and because um, they need to be facing this direction, that's where he's going to be. He's going to be coming from. So this is kind of the heart um, of the world. Now I just want to give you another picture. It takes place. This is this is before any city, before any city was there. So these do have different names as their older names. But here's Mount Moriah. Remember what took place in Mount Moriah? So this is this is Jerusalem. You see the city of David right here. It's not there, but then you see the Temple Mount that is right here. Uh, what happened to Mount Moriah? First thing that happened to Mount Moriah. Abraham. Abraham went up there and do what? To sacrifice his, his son, to sacrifice his son Isaac, dedicated it to the Lord. It says, I will provide the sacrifice. You know, this is like the heartbeat of everything that takes place. Well, again, you have the Kidron Valley uh, that is right here, the Honan Valley, the Honan Hon- Valley, and then the Central Valley that has taken place um, right there. So I just want to give you an aerial view of this. That would be right here. This is where you have Zion, city of David. You also have this is taking place right here. Is where the temple and the temple mount is. And then you have the Kidron, uh, the Hinnom Valley right here. And then you have Kidnom, um, the Kidron Valley here. And then you also have the Central Valley, also called the Raphia Valley, um, that takes place here. But do you notice that uh, shape and what that shape looks like? Um, does that shape have any purpose at all? You know, there's been a lot of researchers, a lot of um, people looking at the shape and, and uh, even pulling out some scripture. And, and I just want to do this, you know, even for the fun of it. But look at 2 Samuel 5, 4. It says, David was 30 years old when he became king and he reigned 40 years. At Hebron, he reigned, oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, I'm going to go to 1 Kings 11. Yeah, 1 Kings eleven thirty six. 36. But, but to his son, I will give one tribe that my servant David may have a lamp always before me in Jerusalem the city where I have chosen for myself to put my name. Reason this. Give me Jerusalem, the city where I have chosen for myself to put my name. I just want to look at some other slides that are taking place because there's some archaeologists that says this is really interesting that God gave David a city for the purpose of putting his name. And uh, what is um, uh, one of God's names? His God's name is El Shaddai. Well, El Shaddai has something called uh, a shin, a sheen, and this is a sheen in Hebrew. It's like an S that is in Hebrew. But if you look at the S, which is in Hebrew, what's interesting about this is it looks like the Kidron Valley, Central Valley, and the Hinnom Valley. Doesn't it kind of look like that a little bit? Let's go down to Yeshua. This is Jesus' name in Hebrew. You also got the sheen. You got the Kidron Valley. You have the Central Valley. And then you also have the, um, you have the, the Hinnom Valley. Um, as well under Yeshua. And I mean, this is not, you know, this is not, you know, um, um, what's the words? 
It's interesting, we'll, we'll put it that way. It's interesting. So let's go to the next slide. Here's the valley. <laughs> it kind of looks like the same. Did God say, I'm going to write my name on Jerusalem, Yeshua, El Shaddai? You got the sheen, but there's another place that God says he's going to write the name, and it's going to be on what? It's going to be on our hearts. Let's go to the next one. This is, this is really um, interesting. So in a sense of the Perkinji uh, fibers are right here. And what does it turn out to be? This is exactly what it looks like. Is this the Kidron Valley, the Central Valley, and the Hinnom Valley? Oh, who knows? Maybe not. But it's kind of fun to play with because God literally says, this is my spot. This is the center of the clock that is literally going to turn around the world. And, uh, you know, it's not, you know, it's not, you know, who knows? Fun to look at, fun to play with. But let's go to the city. Here's a city right here. This is kind of an old-fashioned. Actually, this is even a fake city back in the day. Again, you have the Kidron Valley that's right here. And then you have the Central Valley that is right here and the Hinnom Valley right here. And this is going to be the palace of David. And remember who lives there now. The Jebusites um, are the one that lives there now. So if David is going to conquer and attack the Jebusites, he is going to go into this and declare war. And I will tell you that nobody takes war with the Jebusites. And the reason why nobody takes war with the Jebusites is because how do you go from the valley and then climb the wall? It's, it's, it's too hard to defend. It's too hard to get in there. You, can't, you cannot do it. You have a valley here, you have a valley here, and you have high walls here. And, and in this valley, how do they get water? You have the Gihon Springs that are right, are right here. But the Gihon Springs are actually located outside of the wall. Because if you're going to have a city, you're going to have to, you're going to have, to have water. So this is extremely, extremely important um, to, have, to have water. So let's go to the next slide. If you're looking... Well, that's not the slide I have. Is there another slide? No, there's no other slide. Okay, well, we'll go back. We'll go back to the other side. So if you're looking at, um, if you're looking at, you guys, you should have a list of five slides. How many slides do you got? Because we're going to go right to Scripture. All right, go for it. All right, we'll go back to the, uh, there. That's a slide I was looking for, that one right there. So here we go. So here's a picture of before the city is done. This would be the Jebusites right here. You see this big old ark right here, this big old fortress right here? What is this? This is where the Gion Springs is at, right in the Kidron Valley. So what takes place is this is outside of the walls of the Jebusites. So if they're outside of the walls of the Jebusites, if somebody's going to come in, you've got to build a huge fortress, a huge piece of strength um, that, is right, that is right here, right around the Gihon Springs. So the next slide. Ah, that's right. We're just getting, these are fake pictures just to let you know, but they do give you a good, good perspective of what is taking place. Here's another picture. You see it on the valleys, a valley here, a valley here, and then you see the Gihon Springs. You see a big old fortress, and then a close-up of the Gihon Springs would look similar to something, the Gihon Springs would look similar to something like this. The next slide. It looks something like this, a huge fortress where all the city people would come, they'd get their water, and they'd bring the water back, and then circle the water throughout the city. But you see the fortress, you see how the walls are protected, extremely heavily guarded in those things. So it's the lowest part because it's inside of the Kidron Valley, but the walls and the fortresses are big enough and most powerful. It's kind of where all the army is at because it would be the weakest place that if somebody is going to invade. But let's do an underground picture of the Gihon Springs. So here's an underground picture. Here's a Kidron Valley. And then right up here, you have the Jebusite city walls. And then you get the Israelite city high walls. So you can get, well, this is an older picture, but you have walls that are extremely high 
Once you get down to the Kidron Valley, that's when you build the walls up high here, but then the springs come through here, and people come down, they pick up the water, and they bring it back. And I don't have time to get into the story, but you have Hezekiah's tunnel right here that says what we're going to do is we're going to make sure that even if we're besieged and be able to be under attack, which you're going to see when the Assyrians attack him, we're going to take the Gion Springs and we're going to actually channel the water all the way around. Let's go back a couple pictures. If we can go back. Uh, they're going to take the Gion Springs. They're going to bring this tunnel all the way around, clear over to here to... Um, uh, to um, Shalom, um, the, the, um, the pool of Shalom, which is, you talk about Jesus, you talk about a lot of people that are being healed there um, as well, and people that are dipping um, underneath, uh, um, underneath the Old Testament law. So, okay, go back again. Don't worry, we're going to get somewhere because this gets really, really interesting. If David is going to conquer this city, what's he going to do? Let's go one more. If he's going to conquer the city, let's go one more. Uh, no, we're going one more. Ah, there it is. If David is going to conquer the city, he cannot get over the walls. He will not be able to climb over the walls. But he has an idea. I am going to go this direction right here. Let's look at his idea of what takes place. And we're going to find that in Second Samuel 5, 6-9. He says, now, see if this is right, yeah. Now the king, of, uh, the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites. He's going to attack Jerusalem. The inhabitants of the land, and they said to David, You shall not come in here. You see our wall? You should not come in here. But the blind and the lame will turn you away, thinking David cannot enter here. Nevertheless, David captured the stronghold of Zion, that is the city of David. <laughs> There's the war. It just all of a sudden took place then explains the war as it took place. David said on that day, whoever would strike the Jebusites, let him reach the lame and the blind. What's he talking about? Let him reach the lame and the blind who are hated by David's soul through the what? Water tunnel. Therefore, they said, the blind and the lame shall not come into the house. So David lived in the stronghold, the city of, uh, stronghold in the city of David. What is the blind in the lame. Think about that. What is the blind and the lame? If you're going to attack the city, how are you going to attack the city? Let's go to the next slide. You'll be see the blind and the lame. Maybe the slide. It'd be the picture of people calling through the water channels. No, it's not that one either. Oh, that's all right. I guess we can do this. I'll tell you what, I'll tell you what David did is what he did is he climbed through the blind and the lame is literally the, the, the she, um, the, there it is, ah, right there. Here's the water shaft that takes place right here. They went up underneath the ground into the Gihon Springs. And they came through the Gihon Springs. And this is David. Remember, he is the, the king. Remember, he's the, but remember, he's also the soldier, kind of like Joshua in the sense that he's the soldier. He walks through there with his mighty man and he goes up underneath the wall, comes up to the well, and all of a sudden pops out and says, I don't know what took place because we don't know what takes place. Just in a sense that Jebusites just completely surrendered. They said, it's, 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 it's too much. He went through the strings. He comes right up the top. And then let's go right into 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel 5.8 says, David said on that day, whoever would strike the Jebusites, let him reach the lame and the blind, which he did underneath the well, who are hated by David's soul, 
through the water tunnel. Therefore they said, the blind and the lame shall not come into the house, but yet David and his mighty men then went into the house. Second Samuel 5, you shall not come in here, but the blind and the lame will turn you away, thinking David cannot enter. Nevertheless, David captured the stronghold of Zion, and the city was taken by David. There's the war in the Jebusites. <laughs> How much war ended up taking place? That's all we know about the war of the Jebusites. But what is interesting about the war of the Jebusites is that they didn't conquer the city. In fact, it is said that they even lived amongst some of the people that are inside of the city. And then when they brought the threshing floor of the temple, David ended up, and we'll see this at the end, David ended up purchasing it from the Jebusites. So it's interesting that David, yes, conquered the Jebusites, but went into the Jebusites, the Jebusites town, the Jebusites tabernacle, the Jebusites the Jebusites, a city, and we went into the city that he made, he must have made peace with them, he must have worked with them, but somehow God just gave it to him. And then he started building the city of David that was on top of that. So the first thing David does after he conquers his Jebusites, and now this is Jerusalem, so it's going to be the capital, the capital of the world, but this will be the capital of Israel. You have Jerusalem, what's the first thing David's going to do? David's going to go right to the Ark of the Covenant. Remember the history of the Ark of the Covenant? You got to get the Ark of the Covenant because that's where the Holy of Holies is at. That is where God is at. And whoever has the Ark on their side is making a statement, God is on our side. It's the Shekinah glory where it's at. So he conquered the Philistines and went after the Ark of the Covenant. And as soon as after he conquered the Philistines and grabbed a hold of the Ark of the Covenant, where is he going to take it? Well, he's going to take it right to the city of, Jeru- or the city of David. He's going bring it, to bring it right in. So what they ended up doing is they ended up putting on an oxen and as they put it on an oxen, there's certain ways you're supposed to handle the ark. Because remember, it's, it's holy, holy, holy. You don't want you know, you to mess around with God's law, which is found in the Levitical law. You want to treat it with great, great respect and great, great honor. Because if you don't treat it, you know, things, things are going to get ugly. So they grab the ark of the covenant. They put it on a cart. And as they put it on a cart, they're starting to bring it to Jerusalem. And they also, um, you're not supposed to put the Ark of the Covenant on a cart, just to let you know. David didn't know the law very well. He's kind of being slack with it. And you're also only supposed to have the Levites, which are the priests, to transport the Ark. David didn't know that as well, because he had some other people that were transporting the Ark and some other people that were alongside the Ark in case if the Ark started to fall, you know, they can stabilize it and those things. So they're bringing the Ark to Jerusalem. As they're bringing the Ark to Jerusalem, uh, I'll tell you, the oxen did stumble, and then the ark started to shake as if it's going to fall to the ground. And when it starts to shake to fall to the ground, the person that's standing next to it, which is Uzzah, grabbed a hold of the ark to do what? To stabilize the ark for it not falling into the dirt. And when he grabbed a hold of the ark, what happened to Uzzah? Remember the story? Lightning just, just struck him down. Um, God made a statement, I'm holy, 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 in the dirt on the ground is a lot more clean than Uzzah's hand. If you're going to touch that ark, I will strike you dead. Well, David sees that. And when he sees that, what does he say? How can I even take this? This thing is is scary. This thing is is powerful. This thing is glorious. God had to do it. And the reason why he had to do it is because his holiness is not being tampered with. And that's what the whole Old Testament is about, is do not tamper with my holiness. And we start playing around with God's holiness, what's the consequences of playing around with God's holiness? It's specifically death. Now, what's this ark even representing? What is the Holy of Holies even representing? The Holy of Holies is representing that it is going to take death 
of a perfect being, which is Jesus Christ, for the purpose of saving us so we can even enter into the Holy of Holies. So that's why when they carried the ark up there, yes, there's rules, and yes, there's going to be death, and yes, you better obey the specific law, but it's pointing us to the amazing Christ that literally came and died to the law for the salvation of our souls. So here David is like, well, I'm not going to take that ark. I'm not going to keep it here. I'm going to actually give it away. So he gave it to he gave it to Obed-Edom, and when he gave it to Obed-Edom, he says, you take the ark. I don't even want it in my city because of the fear. Well, all of a sudden, Obed-Edom was completely being blessed with the ark in a sense of fruit, in a sense of happiness, in a sense of joy, in a sense of complete entire blessing to their household. So then David goes, well, maybe God does want us to have the ark as he's being the blessed. So they didn't take the ark back to Jerusalem, but he read the manual a little bit where the Levites are supposed to do it. You're not supposed to put it on a, um, an oxen and those things, on, on a cart. And then he brought it up to Jerusalem. And when he brought it up to Jerusalem, David went crazy into worship, excited about worship. And when he got so excited about worship, he was just dancing, he was singing. Yes, we've got the Ark of the Lord. I read the rule book and we made it up here. Nobody died in the process of making it up there. And he's celebrating because God is specifically on his side. And is that the way a king is supposed to behave? That is not the way a king is supposed to behave because I will tell you what David even did. He even got down in his underpants. <laughs> I don't know if they're tidy whities or what, but he was taking off his clothes and even, and even dancing and so excited about that. That is an extreme sign of weakness to a king. And if there, a king shows any sign of weakness, what's going to take place? All the armies are going to go, <laughs> the king has gone nuts. He's weak. We can take him over. The king is insane. We can take him over. Kings are never supposed to betray themselves as weak. And David's wife, Michal, M-A-C-H-A-L, I think that's the way you pronounce it. We never know how these old names are pronounced. But Michal was Saul's daughter that he gave to her. She confronted him and said, this is not the way the king is supposed to behave. Put your clothes back on. What are you doing? Humbling yourself, dancing around this Ark of the Covenant. Well, see what you have there and what has really taken place is a huge proclamation of the Holy of Holies, the King of Kings, the Ark of the Covenant, and then my submission and worship to it. I am not the King of Israel. Who is? Somebody else is the King of Israel. And I'm a no good shepherd boy, just in no sense, a no good shepherd boy that don't even deserve this beautiful piece of the Holy of Holies or this position that I've been given and I've been, I've been granted to. So you see, again, the complete focus is not, let me tell you stories about David and how wonderful he is, or let me tell you stories about Abraham and how wonderful he is. It's let me tell you a story about God and how wonderful he is, how merciful he is, and how he rules, how he dominates, and how he is the King of kings and Lord of lords. Peter, did you have a, a comment? Okay, because I was going to give you the microphone and let you, let you, let you ask a question or talk. Um, so that's what the drive of the Old Testament is, and you can see that specifically in these stories. So now the Ark of the Covenant has been brought to Jerusalem, and after the Ark of the Covenant has been brought to Jerusalem, what do you think David is going to do? David is going to say, well, we've got to build a temple specifically for the Ark of the Covenant. Here I am in the house of cedars. Here I am in an absolutely beautiful castle in the city of David. But then you have the Ark of my Lord that has absolutely nothing. Why should I be building this? I just want to read 2 Samuel 24, 18. It says, So Gad came to David and said to him, 
Go up and erect an altar to the Lord at the threshing floor of Aranea of the Jebusites. David went up according to the word of, God, uh, word of Gad, just as the Lord had commanded. Aranah looked down and saw the king and the servants across towards him. And Aranah went and bowed his face to the ground before the king. Then Aranah said, Why has my lord the king come to his servant? And David said, To buy the threshing floor from you in order to build an altar to the Lord the plague, uh, that the plague may be held back from the people. Aranah said to David, Let my lord the king take and offer up what is good in your sight. Look, the oxen for the burnt offering, the threshing floor, sledges, and the yokes, and the oxen of wood. Everything, O king, Aranah gives to you, king. And Aranah said to the king, May the Lord your God accept you. However, the king said to Aranah, which is King David, No, but I will surely buy it from which I will sure no, I will surely buy it from you for a price, for I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord, my God, which cost me nothing. So David brought the threshing floor and the oxen for fifty shekels of silver. And the reason why he bought it is 2 Samuel 2, that the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in the house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells within tents and curtains. I will make myself a temple for the Lord to place the ark in. Therefore, what did David do? Did he build the temple? No, he didn't get to build the temple. Good desire, David. We appreciate your desire. We're excited that you want to take the ark and take the Holy of Holies, and we want you to build the temple for me, but you don't get to do it, and the reason why is you have too much blood on your hands. You have too much killing that is on your hands. So therefore, I'm going to leave that to your son Solomon, Solomon to build. But who had the mind of it? Who had the heart of it? Who had the direction of it? Who, who wrote it down, and who did the design? David is one that designed the temple to be built for the purpose of the Ark of the Covenant sitting inside of the Holy of Holies to have this all erected and taken, and taken place. So, but Solomon is the end, one that ended up building it. But if you notice in that passage that he bought the land from Uranah, which is the Jebusite's king. Well, remember, he conquered the Jebusites, but that's why we're thinking, well, what happened with him and the Jebusites? Because he had such a relationship that he conquered the Jebusites, took over the Jebusites, but then bought the land for the purpose of the temple. Just kind of interesting, but this is the history of Jerusalem and what took place. So I want to travel back a little bit because there's another story before we get to King Solomon that you kind of need to understand and uh, how Solomon specifically came um, about. Um, Solomon came about from an affair that took place with David. And I just want to open up scriptures and I want to see what took place in regards to this affair. And the reason why I want to look at that is because Solomon is the one that's going to be thrusted into 1 Kings. Um, It's going to be the direction of the book of Ecclesiastes, the book of Proverbs, and the king that is over Israel. And I just want to look into how Solomon came about. 2 Samuel 11, 1-5 says, Then it happened in the spring, at that time when the kings go out to battle, that David sent Joab and his servant with him and all Israel, and they destroyed the sons of Ammon, and besieged Rabbah. But David stayed at Jerusalem. Now when evening came, David arose from his bed and walked around on the roof of the king's house. And from the roof he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful in appearance. Remember how the design works in the sense of you have the the valley here, the Kidron Valley, the Central Valley here, and you have the Jebusites 
You have the city of David right here. Well, it also climbs like this. If you put his palace on the top, he can see over his whole little fortress. And what does he see? He sees a woman that is bathing. So what should he have done? He should have turned his head and he should have walked the other direction. But David didn't. It says this. So David sent and inquired about the woman. What that means is go get me her. And one said, is this not Bathsheba? This is a servant that is speaking. Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Edom? the wife of Uriah, the Hittite. Now that is a very interesting passage. And the reason why that's an interesting statement is because this is a statement from a servant that says, I want to inquire about this lady who is bathing. Go get her for me. And the servant is speaking to the king and the servant does not want to what? Lose his head. So if the servant does not want to lose his head, he is going to respond to the king the way he is supposed to respond to the king. And now the king is doing what? Something that's not good. Something that's not bad. But the servant also wants David to think. Think about this a little bit. She's not your wife. <laughs> so what does the servant says? Look at, so he sent out to inquire the woman, and he said, Is this not the Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Now, whenever you address somebody um, in, in the Old Testament, you also address them, the daughter of Eliam, which is that would be the father, but then he started dressing down the line, the lineage, the granddaughter of, and the great-granddaughter of. That's how you always address somebody. So it should be the daughter of Eliam, the granddaughter of, and the great-granddaughter of. But this servant is trying to give David some communication to say, this is not a good idea. You never say, oh, this is the wife of Uriah. That's not stated in that sentence. So you can see a little bit that has taken place of David, this is not really necessarily a good idea. And it's made a statement soft enough where he's not going to lose his head um, because he confronted specifically the king. But he's trying to get David to think, but was David thinking? No, his brains were somewhere else. <laughs> Just like Charles Swindoll says, David's way too human to be in the Bible. <laughs> way too human. Mind was something else. David sent the messengers after it took place. David sent and took her. And when she came to him, he lay with her. And when she had purified herself from her uncleanness, she returned to her house. The woman conceived and she sent and told David and said, I am pregnant. And I will tell you the story just gets worse from there because then David starts to say, well, I need to fix this. And the only way I can fix it is if I can get your husband who is in the battlefield, the place where I should be at, but I'm not, Get your husband, and if I can get him back here to sleep with you, Bathsheba, then nobody will know that it's my daughter. So he does what? He gets Joab to bring him back, Uriah back. He brings him back, and Uriah is what? Completely committed to the king. Completely committed to his soldiers. Completely committed to the purpose. Completely committed to the mission. And he says, I am not going to go sleep with my wife while my fellow brothers are out there at war. I'm not going to do it. I will sit only next to my king. And that drove David absolutely crazy. He's like, come on, I'm giving you a break. Go sleep with your wife. You have to sleep with your wife, otherwise I'm not going to get off the hook and I'm going to get in trouble. So he tries to get him to drink alcohol. So come on, go sleep with your wife, go sleep with your wife. But the commitment of Uriah stayed right specifically at the door for days and says, I'm not going to be able to get him to sleep with his wife. So then he does what? Writes a letter, which is his death sentence. Joab comes and says, bring Uriah back um, into, into the field, 
and he actually gives the letter to Uriah. Uriah gives it to Joab and says, and the letter literally says, I want you to attack right close to the armies, and as you attack close to the armies, I want you to flee, and I want Uriah to flee to the point where Uriah is left alone so he'd be dead. So here you have a man that's after God's own heart, David, specifically, sleeps with somebody else's wife and then kills her husband um, so he can cover up the entire sin. And then he lives with it, and he lives with it for a year with not even, with not even, worrying, with not even worrying about it. A lot of people have struggles with this, and the reason why people have struggles with this is why would Paul in Acts say twice that King David is a man after God's own heart? And remember last week when we talked about what a man looks like um, after God's own heart? is one who has the heart in God's, the connection there. What is on God's heart is on my heart. What God sees, I see. What God wants, I want. God's purpose is my purpose. I will walk, I will walk, I will walk, I will walk. Whatever God is, that, that's what's going to take place. That's what I'm going to do. So Nathan, and I'm just telling you this story, Nathan, who's a prophet, gives um, a little story to, um, to David and confronts him over the sin. So I'm just going to go. I'm not going to give you the whole story that he gives. But confronts David over the sin. And when David was confronted over the sin, what did he do? He fell right down to God. And we have probably one of the greatest passages in the Bible. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit in me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not thy Holy Spirit from me. And what takes place is David completely broke, specifically before God. Now that's the same story that you see in the New Testament, when you had two individuals had horrific sins according to Jesus. One of the people that had a horrific sin was Peter. What did Peter do? Right when Jesus went to the cross, he denied him three times. I don't even know the guy. In fact, he started swearing at a little girl and said, I don't, I don't, even, I don't even know Jesus. I don't, I, don't, I don't associate with him. Completely denied him. And then you have another person that denied Jesus as well. And who was that? Judas denied him as well. But they had two different reactions that take place. What was Peter's reaction? Peter's reaction is, I have fouled up, I have messed up, and his face went right to the ground. Forgive me and renew a steadfast spirit within me. And then what was Judas's reaction? Uh, Judas's reaction, he went out and he hung, he hung himself. You see, when you talk about a man after God's own heart, or people that are connected to God, we end up sinning, but it's actually what we do with our sin is what matters. It's what we do with God is what matters. When a prostitute walks in the room, and the Pharisees are sitting next to Jesus, she says, oh, this person's going to be more happy because I've forgiven more sins from her than I've forgiven in you because you guys are supposedly so perfect. But what we do with our sin, see, God is communicating to us that what we're doing with our sin is more important than the fact that we, are, that we, even, that we even sin. Are we breaking before God? Are we breaking before God? Or are we turning away? Because there's only one direction that we're going to go or not going to go. So here we do get this picture of this horrific sin, and I like to read the passage and say, <laughs> I haven't had an affair, and I haven't killed the husband of the person I had an affair with. I'm a little bit better than David. But see, that's not the way it works. It's all about a sense of, am I, my heart, connected with God's heart as we're walking? Do I see his grace? Am I feeding on him his love? Am I worshiping the cross and the sacrifice that he's given us? Am I a changed person? Am I, am I, um, is God driving my life or am I driving my life? 
And that would be the story as we look at. Because the reason why I give you that, that entire story is because somebody else is going to be king one day over Israel. And what's interesting is that the baby that was conceived with Bathsheba dies. David's going to pay for his sin, period. Completely pays for his sin. He fasts, he begs, he pleads, please don't take my son. And sure enough, his son dies. But then Bathsheba gets conceived again, and then who does she have? She has another baby, and his name is what? Is Solomon. Um, Jacob had a completely and entirely messed up life, and you see the hand of God work all things out for good. With David, you see after he committed sin with Bathsheba, he, I'll tell you that it went downhill from there. I tell you, he was almost perfect all the way till Bathsheba, and I tell you, his kingdom went boom, 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 boom. He came up every once in a while and did, did okay every once in a while, but I will tell you that he specifically paid for that sin while he was on earth, just like we consistently pay for the sin. But the question is, what are we going to do with the sin? Are we going to bow to God, or are we going to run um, from God? And the reason what the story is pushing towards, I believe that the story is pushing towards, is that God will make something ugly bad, horrific, still into something specifically good. Because King Solomon was picked to be um, underneath, um, to be the king of Israel after David. So let's look at 1 Kings chapter 15. Adoniah um, wants to become king, and that was uh, David's fourth son. And let's just look at this. So Bathsheba went to see the aged king in his room where Adishag and Shunammite was attending. Bathsheba bowed low and knelt before the king. What is it you want? the king asked. She said to him, My lord, you yourself swore to me that your servant by the Lord your God, Solomon your son, shall be king after me and will sit on my throne. But now Adonijah has become king, and you, my lord, the king, do not know about it. All of a sudden, Solomon is not king. David's fourth son has not taken the position as king, and Bathsheba did what? She went to King David, who was extremely ill, and says, somebody's gone behind your back. Solomon is not the king, but remember who's in control. First Kings one twenty-eight. Then the king David said, call in Bathsheba. So she, so she came into the king's presence and stood before him. The king then took an oath, as surely as the Lord lives, who has delivered me out of every trouble, I will surely carry out today what I swore to you by the Lord, the God of Israel. Solomon, your son, shall be king after me, and he will sit on my throne in my place. Then Bathsheba bowed low with her face to the ground, and kneeling before the king said, May my lord, King David, live forever. And then Solomon takes the kingship specifically after David. All the way through this, you see God working with messed up people. (laughs) I just explained scripture. God working with messed up people people. And the Old Testament and the New Testament is the revelation of how God works with messed up people. And you see that he's not looking for the champions. He's not looking for the strength. He's not looking to conquer the great armies. He's looking for somebody that is after his own heart. That's what he's looking for. Is it going to have the same mind as me, the same heart as me, the same same drive as me, the same purpose as me, the same mission as me? That's what our Christian life is. It's not, I'm going to impress God so God will do something for me. I am going to have God's mind, God's heart, God's desires, God's purpose, God's drive. 
That's what God is specifically looking for. And when sin takes place, you then get to make a decision. Am I going to run <laughs> or am I going to go to that cross? Because the whole story of the Old Testament is God working up with messed up people, people still coming to God even when they mess up and extremely bad. So the hand of God is on people. How do we respond to that would be the question.